right, right. No, like the the sound in here was unreal. I couldn't believe it. During the growing season of 2023, as summer turned into fall, the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast and Regeneration Canada were on the final leg of the Stories of Regeneration tour. After our months-long journey covering most of the prairies and most of central and eastern Canada, the Stories of Regeneration tour came to an end in Canada's two most western provinces around harvest time. And it was on this final leg of the tour in Coston, British Columbia, the organic farming capital of Canada, I discovered the podcast recording studio of my dreams. And the, well, he was saying like there's no real echo because of the uh, walls, okay. I think. That makes sense, actually. Yeah, because when I first walked in here and I saw a big open room, like we're screwed. We've recorded a lot of podcast episodes in a lot of different farmhouses about the farm solutions that are also climate solutions. But never have I come across one that was as perfect for recording a podcast as the farmhouse at Snowy Mountain Farms. Apparently, straw bale houses are great at absorbing sound. There was like no echo in the farmhouse. It was unreal. The owners are actually lucky they got rid of me after recording. Jesus, we've been talking for two hours. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, maybe I got a little carried away working in that space. I don't want it to be a doom and gloom kind of reality, and I don't think that helps anyone. (laughs) There is a certain amount of, like, we need to urgency. We need to make changes. But I want it for myself to be hopeful because I don't don't know if any farmer wants to be told what you're doing is wrong. I think they want it just a better way to do things. And if they can be presented that, here's a way to try this where you're going to have a not only is this going to be better for your land and long-term health of your your soil, your crops, but you're also going to have a better yield and be less reliant on, like, you don't have to spray this stuff as much. You don't have to do this or that. Maybe it's even less work when all is said and done and cheaper. All those things are a win-win. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions in partnership with Regeneration Canada presents Stories of Regeneration, a podcast series exploring why we, as a society, need to get behind the farmers and ranchers who are regenerating the land, ecosystems, and local economies through their agriculture principles and practices. Farmers and ranchers who are striving for great things through regenerative agriculture. Part 6, Diversity is Resiliency, with Aaron Goddard of Snowy Mountain Farms in Boston, British Columbia, October 16th, 2023. Sweet. So yeah, if you could just start off, um, what's your full name? Where do you live? And what do you do? My name is Aaron Goddard, and I live in Coston. It's in Similkameen Valley, BC. Um, and I'm a farmer. Okay. Many farmers have off-farm jobs. Are you one of the ones that have managed to avoid that, or have you also had to go down that road? I do have another job, quote-unquote. I I started a small winery with uh, friend with friends of ours, so okay. that's kind of like my other job. I was 
kind of shocked when I heard you had 70 different varieties of fruit here. I couldn't even name 20 different varieties of fruit if I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if you could just give folks an idea of what you have going on here. Sure. Yeah. So this was all planted before we, we got here. The previous owners had, had planted it so that it could be, um, the focus was a salad at farmer's market. So that every, every week you have a different set of varieties available. And, and so it's, you know, kind of carefully planted so that certain varieties that ripen earlier are available earlier and, and so on. Uh, we start our season out with cherries. Uh, we have a variety of cherries and then it uh, moves on to apricots. Then we have some peaches and plums. And then uh, later in the season, we kind of start moving into pears, apples, quince. So there's really quite a... a you know, a variety, even within each of those, uh, we have probably, yeah, it's around 70 varieties total. And some of which I'm still <laughs> trying to, you know, pinpoint and figure out, you know, is this, is this the variety I think it is? There, none of it was labeled when we got here. <laughs> I'm Derek Leahy, host of the Rural Roots of Climate Solutions podcast. Now, wait a minute here. Aaron's a farmer, right? So shouldn't he know everything about everything when it comes to food? Well, no, that's completely unrealistic and unfair. And also, Aaron didn't grow up at Snowy Mountain Farm. In fact, he grew up in Colombia, which is a whole other fascinating story for another day. Aaron and his wife Carly bought Snowy Mountain Farms a few years back. And at the time, they knew way more about growing grapes for wine than they did about fruit and being orchardists. Here's the story of how Aaron got into agriculture. I th- it started kind of through my love of food mm-hmm. and cooking. When I was going to university, I was interested in, in cooking mostly. I was really kind of working in some restaurants, and that got me into wine. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated, I had a BFA and a Bachelor of Fine Arts and Philosophy and knew that wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do as a profession. I was thinking way more about cooking, but not sure if that was the really the kind of life that would be good for like a family life. Mm. Uh, Carly and I were starting to think about that. And I was definitely thinking more about wine those days and I had worked many summers planting trees up north and loved working outside working in nature so uh, that kind of led to you know a curiosity about maybe working in a vineyard Um, so we moved here to work at a at a vineyard here we had an opportunity to work at a local uh, winery here in Austin Um, that's what brought us out here Um, and so it's kind of a little combination of interest in food wine and agriculture and that kind of set me off on this path geeking out more and more about, <laughs> about farming i remember actually when we did that phone call you said something really cool it was almost like this nexus between it was i think it was how you described agriculture too it was like or maybe it was just for viticulture it was like craftsmanship food and i forgot the third one but i don't, I don't know if you mm-hmm. I, yeah i i i think it's something like to me, um, agriculture, or, uh, wine actually is, mm. is this, it's kind of like at the intersection of agriculture and food 
and also craftsmanship. Like there's mm. these all these things, and that's what really drew me into to wine. And and so my background became more working in agriculture for the purpose of making wine, which is a little different than what I'm doing now, but uh, still doing that a bit. <laughs> but it's kind of broadened, become a, a uh, you know, we have an orchard now. So there's, there is a different focus, if, if you will. Forgot to talk about the other members of the farm. So I mentioned your wife, Carly, and you've got two farmhands that are slowly <laughs> growing, or three yes. maybe, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we, we uh, Carly and I, and we got two little ones, uh, two daughters, okay. Gracie and Olive, that are six and three, keep us really busy. <laughs> um, and we also got uh, three employees that are just amazing. They, they are our farmhands, if you will, but mm. they're, they're so much more than that. They're like family to us and a real integral part of the farm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And, and your parents live close by too, or Carly's parents live close by. Right? Yes, yes. Uh, also, an important part of mm-hmm. of the farm. They live on the farm, kind of. Uh, they're, they're across the road, and um, we're the one main reason why we are able to do this. I mean, we didn't have enough money to buy the farm ourselves. We we had sold the house we had, and my parents were retiring and looking to to move somewhere near their kids and grandkids. And um, instead of buying a house somewhere else, they decided to help us buy this place and um, settled in here at the farm with us. So Mm. they've been a a huge part of all of this happening too. It's kind of, it it takes a a village. (laughs) Believe it. It's a really cool community you're building Mm -hmm. here. That's awesome. All of the agriculture producers we heard from in this series so far have been farmers and ranchers who were born into farming and ranching. There may have been a point or two in their youth where it didn't look like they'd take up the family business. All of them, as adults, wound up becoming agriculture producers. Aaron and Carly Goddard and Ontario agriculture producer Su Shen are the only new farmers we interviewed for Stories of Regeneration. Well, maybe Dr. Rebecca Harbutt of Quantlam Polytechnic University in British Columbia would count as a new farmer as well. I just never really asked her if she saw herself as an agriculture producer. I think she's one, but I've also got a pretty broad definition of what an agriculture producer is. We'll hear from Rebecca and Su Shen a little later in our series, or in what I call book three of our series. Those people who get into farming or ranching later on in life, so they're not born into it, the people that we refer to as new farmers or ranchers, they face a whole slew of challenges when it comes to getting into agriculture. Aaron just highlighted one right there, and that's the absence of intergenerational knowledge. I was never a farm kid, and I didn't grow up on a farm myself. And I've always been kind of jealous of that foundational knowledge agriculture producers who grow up in agriculture have. I'm not saying it didn't take a lot of hard work to accumulate that knowledge. Having to weed the garden or bale hay when all the other kids have gone swimming probably feels like a pretty raw deal when you're like 12 years old. I've just always been envious of the knowledge that those producers have 
just from being around agriculture their entire life. There is a downside to that intergenerational knowledge. Often, an agriculture producer is expected to carry on the traditions, ways of farming, and practices of the previous generation. It makes it just that much more difficult and challenging to transition to something like regenerative agriculture when part of the process is turning to a parent and saying, I'm not going to farm a ranch like you anymore. Obviously, you hope to God they're not going to take it personally. And honestly, I, I don't care what anybody says. I've never come across a profession that's as much a job as it is a lifestyle as being a farmer or rancher is. Honestly, the only other professions that come close to it are probably being a monk or a nun. For new farmers and ranchers, on the other hand, they've got a bit more wiggle room when it comes to trying new things like regenerative agriculture. Because some of those social pressures to farm or ranch in a certain way, some of which we've talked about in this series, they're just not there. In fact, if you look at some of the surveys on new farmers and ranchers, they get into agriculture because they want to help address climate change. They want to help address biodiversity collapse, or they want to feed their communities nutritious and delicious food. And quite often, it's all of the above. Dana Penrice, who's an advisor to Rural Roots to Climate Solutions and one of the superstars of Young Agrarians, me and her had a really good chat in episode 39 and 41. It was that good. We needed to do a two-parter. We had a great chat about how new farmers themselves are actually a climate solution. You know, nobody's really been able to answer this question, and yet I keep asking it. Uh, do you recall, like, the first time or one of the first times you heard about mm-hmm. regenerative agriculture? Maybe not, like, the very first. Like, I think it was a, a, a few different things that piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the first times I started thinking about this kind of farming, before I even considered or thought of the word regenerative or knew of that word, mm-hmm. It, it was again through wine and a lot of the wines that I loved were made in this kind of natural way. And I noticed that a lot of them were not just um, making their wines that way, but growing, uh, a lot of them were growing biodynamically mm. or in different holistic kinds of ways. And I just found that uh, to be really captivating. I, I, I thought, you know, they're, they're, Maybe it's something about how it was quite revolutionary for what the standard of, you know, way of farming grapevines was at the time and s- still in general is. And But also that, you know, I, there's something about, you know, a, a more natural way of working that attracted me to that uh, initially. And then the more I kind of went down that that road, uh, discovered different things. One, I remember one was a podcast I listened to from Mimi Castile. She's a winery owner, but also uh, she's based down in Oregon, but started, uh, I think this is more recently, but she started a, uh, or is part of a organization called Regenerative Viticulture. Mm. But back in the day, she gave, she did this podcast at a, a, when I was pruning in a vineyard one day, listening to it. And it, it just really, the way she spoke about the kind of farming she was doing. I can't even remember if she referred to it as regenerative at that time, but 
it just had there's the way she spoke about it with such clarity and there's this you know it was scientifically sound but at the same time you know there is she's working in such a holistic way and working with nature and and this this was two things that you you often had you know a lot of the biodynamic farmers i had heard from and was learning more about definitely had a lot more of this it was like they're going at it by the way it feels the way it what they're observing and maybe less data driven and and i think she was doing both and that was really something that i just kind of struck me and i i do remember specifically like listening to that podcast many times and just so much information that i was like inspired by um and then a, a, another source kind of around that same time was this this book which i, I still is like a orchard bible to me but it's okay. called the holistic orchard by michael phillips and he also i don't it's kind of before the term regenerative was was coined but um but he has this very holistic way of practicing orchard work and it's and it has a lot of parallels to regenerative farming a lot of it is focused on on healthy soils building up a, a you know a fungi based soil and he talks about it in again in a, in this way where it's he's done a lot of his own research and has a lot of data on specifically on his uh, you know his farm but he but he's also got you know, lots of research he put in. And and at the time, it probably was quite revolutionary, but now it's starting to become a lot more accepted. I still, you know, it's still a book I refer to all the time. So yeah, those are kind of some of the early times I remember hearing about regenerative farming. Mimi Castile is a botanist and ecologist turned regenerative agriculture producer who owns a vineyard in Oregon called Hope Well. She's got a lot of her writings and interviews on regenerative agriculture posted on the Vineyards website. Well worth checking out. Michael Phillips was an agriculture producer in New Hampshire who grew apples and medicinal plants. His book, The Holistic Orchard, from what I gathered, and I I only read the summary of the book on the web, but the book's meant to be a step-by-step guide for anyone who wants to produce tree fruits and berries in a way that you're working with nature not trying to bend it to your will. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2022. The Soil Food Web is a reference to all the living things that spend time living in soil. We talked about that vast soil microbial community in part three of Stories of Regeneration with Ontario agriculture producer Blake Vince. The Soil Food Web is that plus the stuff you don't need a microscope to see. So plants, badgers, so on and so forth. The Soil Food Web School is based on the work of soil biologist Dr. Elaine Ingham. The school provides courses and learning materials for farmers and ranchers, and just about anybody who has a slight interest in soil, courses and learning materials on how to maximize soil function and regenerate the land and ecosystems. One of the 10 principles of regenerative agriculture that we're covering in this series, and by the way, if you're ever looking for those 10 principles, go to the Regeneration Canada website. But one of them that really applies to what Aaron is doing at Snowy Mountain is maintaining living roots year round. Now, what the heck does that mean? 
We've already learned about cover crops a bit through this series. Now, cover crops are a great tool for protecting the soil on grain and vegetable crop lands and offer nutrition to soil organisms in between harvests. But perennials, trees, shrubs, and other plants that grow back year after year, so the kinds of plants that Aaron works with in his orchard, they have more developed root systems than annuals. This enables them to sequester more carbon, store more water, and sustain complex soil microbial communities throughout the seasons. Agroforestry is a good example of maintaining a living root. Agroforestry involves integrating fruit and nut trees or trees for timber into an agriculture system and includes practices like windbreaks, alley cropping, and silvopasture. Both trees and perennial plants can provide habitat for beneficial organisms and enrich the soil microbial community. In episode 32 of our podcast, we actually talk about alley cropping. Obviously, the downside of the podcast is people can't really see where we are right now. And we're a really nice place, by the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you could just sort of like describe the land that's around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're in a, in a valley. It's a fairly narrow valley. And uh, the mountains are quite steep here. Um, it's called, our farm is called Snowy Mountain Farm for a reason. There's snowy mountains above us uh, that go up into the alpine. That, that kind of altitude of mountains brings down cool wind at, in the evenings. So during the summertime, our growing season, we have very hot days and, and then cool nights, which help cool down the fruit. They help maintain freshness and acidity. This is especially applicable to to grapes when you're making wine, but I also think it produces really delicious tasting fruit. Um, we kind of have the natural conditions for that. There's there's um, different factors. We have a, we have very granitic soils, and as I was explaining before, we have a, a rain shadow here. So mm. the mountains, uh, well, we get a, all these weather systems that come off the coast. We're about four hours inland. And the weather systems hit our mountain, and they're kind of stopped by the by the big mountains here. And on our side of of the mountains in the valley here, it's it's very very dry. We we don't get hardly any of that rain or snow. Uh, so as a result, we have incredibly dry, arid conditions, and and it's almost a desert. It's called a semi-arid continental climate. Mm-hmm. Um, we have all kinds of, you know, vegetation that you would see in a desert, like sagebrush or other scrubby kind of plant, plants and vegetation, uh, and some of the wildlife that comes with that too. Mm, uh, you're <laughs> telling me about some of those wildlife mm-hmm. encounters with your peaches. So yeah, the story behind the wildlife encounters and the peaches is Aaron told me while we were walking around his farm. So this is before we started recording. He mentioned the black bears had taken a liking to the farm's peaches, which, all credit to Aaron, he didn't mind that so much. He was okay with sharing some of what he produces with the wildlife that shares the land with him. The problem is black bears, being clever bears, figured out that picking fruit is for the birds and that it's way easier just to break off a branch that's loaded with fruit and eat the fruit that way. This is no good since it could damage the tree. And that branch, well, ideally it was going to produce fruit for years to come. 
Unfortunately, that was not the only challenge Aaron faced during the growing season of 2023. It has been a very challenging season. We, like so many other people, we we had a really tough winter. We had some record-breaking cold temperatures, which had a, a pretty significant effect on grapevines. A lot of people lost grapevines or at least had major bud damage in their fruit. So that that uh, affected some of our young vines. We probably lost 30% of, of all the vines we planted last year. And certain varieties we're learning are definitely not cut out for those kind of temperatures. So we're trying to rethink kind of how what we plant and moving forward uh, with this new reality. I think we're not, this is just the beginning of, you know, unfortunately a more extreme climate changes and, and extreme conditions. I th- after we've had a, f- a few other, we had a crazy mudslide in the spring that took out some of our irrigation and just fortunately, you know, didn't come towards our home or anything, but just was on the kind of edge of our property and and that was scary i mean that's that's from a lot of you know snow build up and runoff over the winter and then like quickly melting uh then we had a long period of drought <laughs> and the conditions were just perfect to, to create other issues from from those conditions so we had you know uh, the worst grasshoppers we've seen and i've talked to various other people this was an issue and even across the prairies i heard this year maybe their set of conditions was different than ours but we had because of the all of the snow melt and a lot of water early in the spring we had lots of green growth lots of grass and 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 vegetation for the grasshoppers to feed on and and a a long period of snow cover in in the in the winter from all the way from november to March, pretty much, we had snow cover, which is rare here. Usually, it melts and then freezes and snows again, and then melts and freezes, and and that kind of freezing can kill off a certain amount of pests. But when you have a snow cover that's maybe a, a couple feet deep, it can create a bit of insulation for mm. for overwintering pests that live, say, just below the surface of the ground or at the roots of trees or something. And so there's a larger population, especially of the grasshoppers. And then with a period of drought, they love dry conditions. Did some pretty serious damage on, especially our cherries and apricots, the first things they kind of could go after. And then stripped a lot of trees of their leaves and something we ha- we haven't experienced this before. Grasshoppers were always there, but never to this extent. So that was one thing. And then followed by a few other pests we hadn't quite seen before and trying to figure out how to deal with this in a holistic way Mm. and there aren't really any easy answers you always accept a bit of loss and a bit of you know there's going to be some pests there's going to be some damage but this was definitely a lot more than we had seen yeah a lot of those kind of conditions and that's kind of my just a a couple of the things that it's felt like definitely the toughest year we've had yet here that said you know there fortunately with our lot of the varieties we have having so many varieties we had a really great apple and pear crop and certain plums that just did exceptionally well this year some that didn't but the ones that did well made up for it and so and peach uh peaches did quite well um 
at least average or above average. So we had certain things that made up for, you know, the losses we had in the other fruit varieties. Diversity is obviously a big piece of the story here. And like we, we kind of touched on that a little bit, like how diversity helped out this year. The fact mm-hmm. that like you didn't just have gala apples, for example, mm-hmm. meant like some stuff did well, some stuff didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that diversity is very tied into resilience. So um, like beyond that specific example, like why does diversity help out with resilience? So there was like mm-hmm. some economic resilience there, but obviously finances and economy is very important, mm-hmm. but it's also just one part of the farm too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pro- probably multi-layered answer to that. But the but as as far as like the the farm diversity goes, like that's that's one of the things that drew us to this farm in the first place. And I guess coming from a belief that nature is resilient because of the diversity you find in nature. Um, there's so many varieties say in a in a forest of all the different kinds of vegetation and plants that all play a role in the, the health of that ecosystem as soon as you turn to monocrops or there's there's there isn't that support system and so i think if we're trying to mimic or learn from nature in the way we're doing our farming i believe it's important to build as much of that diversity into the farm and so that's obviously it can start with the amount of varieties that we're growing which gives you some resilience both you know one crop is doing poorly the others might not and might do well and might you know and so economically that's that's going to help but i think then on a more biological level you have you have all these different varieties of plants that are all going to play a role some of which are naturally growing there and others that i believe are going to be useful to plant that can i mean when it all comes down to it you know a lot of the trees that we're we have growing here are not native to this area to begin with so i don't yeah it's not about creating necessarily a system that is as natural to what this used to be here although you can learn from that and hopefully try and grow whatever is naturally able to grow here the best but sometimes i'm not opposed to growing things that are not necessarily native here, but can grow well here. I guess that ties into our, you know, what cover crops, and that's a big part of the diversity we're trying to build here. I, I have, you know, various cover crops that that we've been planting here. Mm. Uh, I mentioned, you know, comfrey. It's deep rooted. It accesses nutrients like calcium, potassium. Uh, can provide really great ground cover. It's an incredible source of carbon. It's got, it's great, like, attracts beneficials. There's others, uh, kinds of clovers that we got planted that are beneficial for, they can, like, attract more. Obviously, their flowers are are attracting beneficial insects. Um, They help suppress weeds. And, of course, like a really great producer of nitrogen. We have some mustard we planted here called Bracco white mustard, and it produces large amounts of like high protein in, in its green material when they break down. They suppress nematodes in this, in, and other soil-borne organisms. They, when they get knocked down, they essentially can be produce this kind of mustard gas, which can kill a lot of these uh, organisms that are 
that are problematic. Also a good source of nitrogen. We have dandelions that can draw potassium. Those just grow naturally here. <laughs> Didn't have to plant them as they do in many places. Uh, different chicory that accumulate zinc, which is one thing that I'm still like we're we've planted it, but we got um, like that's one thing that's often required here in our soils are tend to be a bit low in zinc. Mm. And I'm hoping that this is this is again one of these you know moments where we were told we need zinc in our in our fruit trees so we need to spray it and hoping that after some years of trial we can learn that maybe by having different kinds of chicory growing that that it actually maybe these trees where it's growing don't require us to spray it anymore i think also it really when it comes down to it a lot of the nutritional sprays aren't even necessarily needed if you have very good fungi population they are so good at accessing the nutrients that are there and if you have usually most of those nutrients are going to be are going to be there it's just whether they can be accessed by the plant and that requires fungi (laughs) so without it there isn't that that connection they need to exchange exchange that with their with their trees so Mycorrhizal fungi is a fungus that has a symbiotic relationship with plants. The deal, if you will, between the mycorrhizal fungi and the plants is that the fungi trades the nutrients it has absorbed from the soil for the carbohydrates the plant was able to cook up through photosynthesis. It's an amazing partnership between one organism that can't really handle much direct sunlight and another organism that can't get enough direct sunlight. Using regenerative agriculture principles like minimizing soil disturbance, keeping the soil covered, integrating livestock, and maintaining that living root are all great ways to strengthen and harness that symbiotic relationship. If you download and listen to any of our episodes featuring soil scientist Dr. Christine Nichols or Dr. Monica Gorzalak, you can learn more about mycorrhizal fungi. Let's see, a few other things that I planted were yarrow, a very good nutrient contributor, horsetail. Both of those are like great for holistic sprays. We're going to be planting this fall a bunch of herbs like thyme, margarine, or oregano, mint, rosemary into our, in between our vines. Uh, the idea is that they are like kind of like a woody component that breaks down over the winter. Then they, well, th- this winter they'll they'll just be seeded there. But in the spring they'll grow. They can they can be great at attracting beneficial, you know, like uh, parasitic wasps and bees and whatnot. But they also can they they have this I guess aroma that can that can confuse some of the pests. So it, um, almost like a mating disruption. So we're going to try that and see how well they work. Plus, there's it's nice to have a bunch of herbs growing in the vineyard so <laughs> for cooking with. And we have other things like uh, daffodils that flowers uh, before the trees leaf, and then they become green compost. So uh, kind of like feeding the trees at that crucial moment. They're also disagreeable to voles and moles. So. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, we have other uh, things like different kinds of bitter herbs like gentian and wormwood and hyssop which can be highly aromatic and again they confuse pests um, but also attract beneficials and then some of the grasses like buckwheat uh, sunflame 
great at also attracting pollinators. They're good for forage for animals, which we hope to have in the future. They add very good organic matter as they break down. Yeah, there's like, those are the majority of kind of what we're growing here, but... That's impressive, yeah. Yeah, the idea is to, I guess, again, try and build that biodiversity up in a way where it's doing the work for us. And all the meanwhile, a lot of those are doing a great job at breaking up the soil and and making it easier for for all kinds of organisms to exist and to and fungi to grow and it's that very important connection between fung, fungi and all of the nutrients they need to access aside from that fungi have this incredible ability to different ones have different abilities to access certain nutrients and and also fight off certain kinds of bacteria that could be harmful, certain kinds of disease, even building up resistance in a tree to fight off certain pests. There's like, as you build up that soil health, the idea is that you build up the health of the, the tree. And that translates to like, at least as far as I understand it, I don't want to pretend to be a scientist, but the building up your sugar levels in your, not just your fruit, but like your sap actually, when they have higher bricks, higher mm-hmm. sugars, they are going to be less attractive to pests. Pests will only eat that if they have to, if they're like, if they don't have another source. Hmm. So as they are, if they were to chew on very high sugared plant material and they, there's this, at least, I don't know if it happens with all pests, but like, like grasshoppers, for example, is one way we're looking at like how to just deal with that is like the healthier your plants are the higher bricks levels you got the more not only will they not go for it but if they have to they their digestive system can't handle it and they essentially ferments in them and then they and then they die so um it's a it's this interesting thing i didn't even think about but this connection between like i see it i saw it this this spring when i see all the the grasshopper damage there's certain trees that that got hit harder than others and right next to there'll be one tree that's completely untouched and one right next to it that the leaves are totally stripped and now understanding this it's it's obvious that like oh that tree had a nutrient deficiency or even just like it's it's not as healthy and the pests target that uh, knowing that those sugar levels are lower so one thing to really even just be able to test this and understand it is by testing the sap analysis more. And that's like another step in the equation here is being able to, if we can test that and and then of course you're going to need years of data to really understand it. But I think it can be pretty obvious right from the get-go if you have a tree that has higher bricks levels in the sap next to one that doesn't and that one got hit. You, you can put two and two together, I guess. But right now it's more theoretical but that's kind of how how we're looking at it yeah it's just so interesting that the elevated sugar levels the deterrent so i think for like human beings it's the exact it's the opposite yeah yeah although it's also not very good for us so i kind of yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's it's true and i mean i think like nature's way of like the sweeter the fruit is the more the the birds are going to want to eat it the bears are going to want to eat it and Mm. then they they uh drop those seeds elsewhere and then that's the way the tree continues to self-propagate but right. but um you know that's it's it's not necessarily the way that pests 
look at the they're they're targeting lower sugar lower sugar in the sap hmm. so in theory if if all the plants in our orchard were having a much higher sugar levels and really really healthy there's very little that would want to attack it that's in theory but that's it's never going to be a perfect thing there's going to be plants that you know from one tree to another you're going to have a slightly different situation under the ground in the soil and even above ground so mm. it's something you have to constantly be paying attention to and yeah i i don't think it'll ever be nature is never going to always you know be you know we can have a orchard that's going to be perfectly the same although you know that's the whole point of diversity mm. so yeah, you have to accept some kind of you're going to have some pests, some disease that it coexists there, as long as that can be kept in check with, mm. with the whole system. So by this point, you're probably seeing how cranking up the diversity on a farm or ranch can help out with resilience. Just like a company, a hospital, or even a professional sports team, in an agriculture system, there are a diversity of tasks and a diversity of roles that require individuals with a diversity of skill sets in order to achieve goals. And you want to keep these individuals from the smallest microbe to the biggest bull happy and healthy so they can perform these tasks and roles. BRICS, which is spelled B-R-I-X, BRICS values are a way to measure the percentage of sucrose, a sugar, in a given crop. It's pretty handy when it comes to fruit, but its application isn't just in fruit. It's an indicator of crop quality and health. Sap testing is testing the sap of a plant to measure the nutrients that are available to that plant via the soil. Soil tests can also let you know what nutrients are in the soil, but sap tests let you know what the plant is actually able to take in and consume. If there's a disconnect between what is in the soil and what the plant is able to take in, it could be an indication that that nutrient exchange between the mycorrhizal fungi and the plant is malfunctioning somehow and probably needs to be addressed. I guess if you want to put it another way, you could compare it to something like food insecurity. Just because we've got grocery stores all over the place, it doesn't mean everyone has access to everything that's in those grocery stores. We'll be going well down the rabbit hole of tests in agriculture for quality, nutrition, and health when we get to our episode with Craig Cameron and Peter Denwoodston of Peony Farms in Lacombe, Alberta, later in the episode. And Peter... I'm pretty sure I butchered your last name again, and I do apologize for that. And um, with the fungi, what, what are some of the things you're doing to help stimulate fungi growth in the soil? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the cover crops are obviously one of the major ways, uh, both the living roots that are there, constantly trying to keep living roots in the soil, but then... As that breaks down, uh, it becomes food for the fungi. And uh, we're, we're spreading wood chips. So we're taking all of our cuttings from, from around the orchard and when we do our pruning. And also we have some, some deciduous trees that surround the property, some patches of trees. Our neighbor right beside us has, there's a patch of trees that goes right to the river. All kinds of, you know, every winter we have some winter fall, some 
trees that fall over due to a windstorm or something, and we cut them down and uh, buck them up and put them through our wood chipper, and then we spread those into the, into the orchard uh, vineyard. And the idea is that they break down and become food for the fungi. They, at, in the meantime, help to kind of create some more damp environment for underneath in, in the soil. It's, the more we can do that in this very dry environment, the better, and the less we have to water. So, yeah, it's like positive all around. One thing I'd love to try this year is taking a bunch of like the larger logs that don't fit in my wood chipper and placing them in between our trees and inoculating them with mushrooms. And so the idea is that they would grow mushrooms and slowly over the course of many years break down into nothing or not nothing but they become kind of food and integrated into the into the soil mm. and build that fungi population even more yeah that's like kind of replicating what would you might see in a forest when a tree falls over and it decomposes uh-huh. then you see mushrooms growing out of it and uh, usually it's a good sign that there's like a lot of fungi activity in the ground but yeah when they're right kind of in between my trees they're gonna have access to water when i'm watering the trees they have enough shade so it seems like just the right environment and maybe if i inoculate them with mushrooms i want to eat then it's got that (laughs) added benefit of being able to eat what you grow there so like a double kind of use and for you like there's that fascination but there's a very practical part to it too Mm -hmm. because there's that nutrient exchange like you're saying like it could be nutrients in the soil, but the, the fruit, the apple tree is not going to get at it unless there's a like fungi highway leading between the exactly, two. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The fungi are kind of the key to unlocking the, all the, the things a plant or tree needs. Mm-hmm. They, without it, the, like life on this planet wouldn't exist. <laughs> so we, and especially with orchard trees and vines, they need a fungally dominant soil. So I think at, at the heart of a lot of our practices, it's always this question of are we, is what we're doing helping build the fungal dominant soil? And maybe that means, you know, with the way we make a compost, does that mean like how, how we're making that that needs to be fungally dominant? And that's a tricky one. I'm, I'm just learning how to do this, but uh, to really do it properly, you need a microscope and you need to be able to study whether you have that, fungal dominance or not it could be bacterial dominant and you have no idea it could look fine but there's a lot of signs that might tell you outwardly you know whether it smells good the way it it, uh it looks can be a sign but really to know we we got to look at that under a microscope and then like um so the different regenerative practices you have like we've gotten over a couple of them so you have like your multi-species cover crop um mm-hmm. talked about compost teas but maybe we could talk a bit more it's like when you compost why you compost why do you turn it into a tea just mm-hmm. for some folks who don't have an agriculture background yeah yeah I, the piles i'm i'm working on have uh, they're mostly wood chips uh mixed in with a little bit of manure which we get locally here. If we have sheep one day, they would just come from, from that. And then some green material. Usually we just take cuttings of you know other plants around that uh, are available, whatever's growing at that moment. It could even be like cutting down really young bushes and stuff from surrounding wild areas. And it has this advantage of both like helping trim out 
some of this extra growth, even in her, I've, I've taken cuttings of different stuff that's already growing in the inside the orchard, and you kind of you mix that all together. The idea, there's so many different ways to do compost, and so uh, I can't be claiming to be any expert on this. I've been learning a lot of it from Murray or the friends at the winery, and it's essentially like it, there's like a few reasons why you might. If you want to build a fungal dominance, obviously the materials you're using are a big part of it. Woodier materials are something that fungi want. But I think the way you do it, if you're, you want it to to get oxygen. So it's essentially, if that's why a lot of people turn their compost. But often when you turn a compost, it can break up mm. your fungal pop, strands and population. Um, so. You want to kind of leave it if you can, but when you leave it and and it's not getting oxygen, the problem is you can have certain kinds of bacteria develop. And as it warms up, um, you're especially prone to having that bacteria. Or it can get too hot and then kill off all the organisms, including the good ones, like all your fungi that you want. So that's why people will turn it to not just bring in oxygen, but to to keep it from overheating. But there are other methods that we're trying that seem to be working really well. You 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 make a you you can make a a sort of it's called a Johnson Sioux bioreactor, but essentially it it's a way that you can uh, not have to turn your your compost. It's got these kind of pipes inside inside the compost that um, are little tunnels of oxygen essentially and help let the heat escape so that you can maintain a, a kind of the right temperature mm-hmm. and once it's gone through that cycle of you know turning into compost then and then at that point um, there's different things people can do but ideally you can add worms earthworms and they help to continue the breakdown in the process and ideally you leave it for an entire year till it turns into this like really fungal dominant rich compost. I always thought that if for some strange reason and some bizarre alternative reality that I decided to switch careers and join like a 90s hip hop group, something like NWA, but we specifically rap about agriculture, that my artist name would most definitely be Compost D. Anyway, Compost D's. Making compost teas involves taking all that lovely compost that Aaron was talking about there, brewing it up in water the same way you brew up a green tea in water, extract that brewed compost tea, and maybe add a bit of water to it if it's a really strong one. And then you throw it in a sprayer and you spray it on the plants and soil that you plan on feeding. Just like Nova Scotia agriculture producer Rachel Lightfoot, who we heard from in the previous episode, Aaron is trying to ensure that the inputs on his farm are largely coming from his farm. Much like Rachel as well, Aaron has found an additional benefit to that integrating livestock principle of regenerative agriculture. In his case, it's with chickens, chickens that he rotates throughout the orchard. Peck around and they're able to eat lots of different pests the amount of grasshoppers they ate this summer they were just feasting and where they were was incredible you wouldn't see a single grasshopper in the trees where they were located you would see them right next to it because they all kind of move over but 
they're constantly like patrolling the edge of where the fence is and 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 getting them or as they drop off the trees or something they're they're going after them and they're very effective at it so it really helped to kind of move them into places where we're getting close to harvest and we need to um, make sure that the grasshoppers aren't going up there the grasshoppers always knew you know when fruit especially like our soft fruits were ripe enough they were that's when they start to bite into them and so if we can keep them move moving the chickens around it really helped with grasshoppers and then other kinds of bugs as well A beef producer in central Alberta told me years ago that if he ever gets hit by a really bad drought, he's going to get rid of all his cows and get turkeys and let them graze on all the grasshoppers. He was joking, obviously, but after hearing a story like that from Aaron, you kind of see how someone would get an idea like that. Next, I asked Aaron what are some of the bigger challenges he faces as an agriculture producer. He does a really great job of highlighting all the factors that impact agriculture production, factors that are completely out of the control of an agriculture producer. Financial challenge is probably the the biggest challenge that we face. Of course, there's a lot of weather and pests and all the kinds of things that you face and all the challenges we face this year that were thrown at us from a from a weather standpoint but yeah i i think the most stressful one and the most challenging thing is definitely the financial side of things we we don't we when we bought the farm you know we had the only way we could do it is is taking on a large mortgage and we really believed in this in this farm we believed in this kind of farming and wanted to put it all on the line and and i like i've always been the kind of person that feels like if you work hard enough at it it you you can make it happen that belief has definitely been challenged and shook a lot since we moved here feels sometimes like no matter how hard i'm working there's certain things that are completely out of your control like we mentioned the weather and whatnot but financially even um we had, you know, with the rising inflation and interest rates that just like tripled in one year, we couldn't afford to to get a a fixed rate mortgage when we moved here. So it was a flexible, like a, a variable one, and and that just like hit us so hard. Our mortgage went up like thirty five thousand dollars in for a year, and and that's just any bit of margin we had was just disappeared so that that creates a whole new stress not only are we not making money but don't we expected that we knew there would be it would be very slim for the first you know three to five years um, before we kind of get to a place where we can start maybe considering paying ourselves some money but then you throw that kind of financial stress into it and any bit of money you might want to put back into the farm or savings in case something happens is is just not possible anymore so that creates obviously a level of stress and makes it really difficult to you know take chances or risks with you you you're definitely questioning you know what happens if you you see an issue with a pest or you know like we had this year with whether it was codling moth or any grasshoppers and 
you begin to wonder if we're going to lose a certain amount of crop this year, then that could mean we can't pay for our mortgage. We can't pay for mm-hmm. all the, and, and it not only is stressful, but it makes you question whether or not, like, why, why are we doing this? Grasshoppers, why not just get a bunch of synthetics and just spray the crap out of the place and mm-hmm. solve and your stress levels go down? Mm-hmm. Well, because I, I think that also doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make me happy. <laughs> I mean, Fair. I think like if I'm going to do it, I want to do it the, the way I feel is the right way to do this. I think more the question is like if you, I guess, do we, do we quit? You know, mm-hmm. like, that's always the thing we grapple with. Like, when, like, uh, you know, we don't want to just quit when the going gets tough, but there is when it when it's extremely tough and 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 challenging everything you you know and and you don't want to you don't want it to get too so far down the road that it's too late to make changes, right? So so that that's more the challenge. It's not so much that would I change the way we're farming because I don't even know if that really I I don't really believe that spraying a bunch of chemicals is necessarily going to be any better mm. in the end. I don't know if that would necessarily solve many of the problems we're facing and definitely not the financial side of things. I mean, that's like what it is. I can't change really the fact that Canada is going through a recession now. That just happens to be the what we're currently all going through. Um, mm. And it affects different people in different ways. But yeah, I mean, I think we, we chose to do regenerative farming because... I mean, like, yeah, there's like an, a moral obligation, both to the land and, our, and the environment. We care about about that, but it's it's more than that. It's it's wanting to be able to pass along the land we're working down to future generations, and in a in a better place than where how we got it, and for it to be flourishing. And I feel like the trend that we're heading in in general is that the lands are constantly getting more and more abused and losing some of the... We're, they're, they're essentially going to waste. And, and how, how do we, as farmers, grapple with, like, what are we leaving our children? You know, like, a, I, I want to leave something that, that I'm proud to leave and that's healthier and flourishing so that yeah i mean that's one major reason why why we choose every day to do this kind of farming and maybe there's like a little part of me that always wants to take the the road less taken (laughs) that's just more of my own personal like i can't help but be drawn to that you can kind of see the dilemma for a farmer or rancher looking to transition to regenerative agriculture You've got all these things like financial markets and climate change that have a heavy impact on agriculture, but they're things you can't do jack about as an agriculture producer. So it can cause a fair amount of stress. If you're already stressed out, trying something new or different, like regenerative agriculture, isn't going to sound super appealing. But you also don't want to get in that super unappealing situation we talked about in part three of Stories of Regeneration where things get so bad on your farm or ranch, you're forced to change. And if you've been listening to the series from the start, you already know that the transition to regenerative agriculture 
is not like flicking a light switch. It takes time. Yet another risk. One major way we as a society can help accelerate adoption rates of regenerative agriculture is to share some or all of the risk when it comes to transitioning farms and ranches to regenerative agriculture. Making sure that this is not something that farmers and ranchers have to take on all by themselves. Later in the series, we're going to explore this idea of sharing the risk with farmers and ranchers when we talk to Dr. Rebecca Harbutt and Dr. Michael Bomford of Quantlum Polytechnic University. What, what's going to take to make this transition hmm. or shift happen? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, th- I think it requires it requires kind of like a work on everybody's both both farmers researchers scientists government uh consumers like for for this to really become something that's that's not just practiced by a few and i i believe that there it does seem like there is some traction and there's a lot of interest there's obviously a few like high profile documentaries and and whatnot made about it which is shedding light to a, a, a much broader population but but I think like one of the things just from like a farmer's standpoint is that farmers really need to to see that it's working. Mm-hmm. And and really if it all comes down to it, it they have to see that like oh if it's better for my land and it's going to also produce a better yield, well, that's like a no-brainer, but they need to be able to to see it. And um I think that's happening in certain pockets. You know, people are being convinced. Like you, you see these great stories of what what's happening in certain parts of the Midwest of the U.S. But it's still pockets, and and there's it's like swimming upstream. There's a huge amount of resistance from the big egg. It's not something like that. If people are going to go away from using all the chemicals they're trying to sell, then that's not something they want. And it's and it's a it's a tough thing for any farmer to to go against. I know like I don't li- live or exist in that same reality that a lot of say grain farmers and you know, the prairies or Midwest of, of the U S are, are having to deal with. That's a whole different ball game. And I can't pretend to know, know or understand the kind of intricacies of those politics. That's like a, that's a different thing. I fortunately have the choice to sell where I want to sell my fruit. So for for things to change i think like i said there has to be like obviously changes on a policy side of things there has but but it's only going to happen if there's enough farmers and enough consumers who want that um and how we get there uh, i mean awareness is part of it but if farmers i i haven't met any farmer who really would would say that they don't care about their land i, I mean all farmers are going to care about that but they have a different perception of what healthy land looks like and and some of it is education and understanding and and just like myself when i started learning about this different way of agriculture if i hadn't been made aware of that i might just continue to think that the standard way that things are done is okay and Mm -hmm. not quite recognizing the the long-term damage that that's causing so i don't want it to be a doom and gloom kind of reality and i don't think that helps anyone (laughs) there is a certain amount of like we need to urgency we need to make changes 
but I want it for myself to be hopeful because I, I don't I don't know if any farmer wants to be told what you're doing is wrong. I think they want it just a better way to do things. And if they can be presented that, here's a way to try this where you're going to have a not only is this going to be better for your land and long-term health of your your soil, your crops, but you're also going to have a better yield and be less reliant on like you don't have to spray this stuff as much. You don't have to do this or that. Maybe it's even less work when all is said and done and cheaper. All those things are a win-win, but it's a whole other thing for people to be convinced. It takes some bolder people to to do it and risk it and try it. And we're fortunate to see some people doing that in certain pockets of the world. So, yeah. Aaron, Carly, and the rest of the family, I hope you know you are some of those bolder people doing it in your pocket of the world. Thanks for listening to part six of Stories of Regeneration. Be sure to download and listen to part seven with Quebec agriculture producers Vincent and Simon-Pierre Baldu of La Station coming straight out of Compton, Quebec. How in the world did I get two NWA references into one podcast episode? Part seven is a pretty historic episode for the Rural Roots of Climate Solutions podcast as it's going to be our very first episode in French. It feels pretty good to actually do a special episode for our Franco-Albertan friends, other Francophone friends, and our bilingual friends. Oh, and for our cheese friends. If you love cheese, part seven is definitely for you. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and participant-driven projects like the Six Gates of Tipi Agriculture Project and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. We produce a farmer's blog, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solution team is... Cheyenne Younger, Kristen Mountain, Shelly Seed, and Lance Tailfeathers. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders and funders from other parts of Canada. The Stories of Regeneration project is primarily funded by Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada. The project is led by Regeneration Canada, a fantastic not-for-profit organization that advocates for soil health to mitigate climate change and guarantee a healthy food system. It's an organization that Rural Roots is proud to partner with. For additional information, videos, blog posts, and digital materials about the agriculture producers featured throughout the series, visit regenerationcanada.org. And a big shout out to Antonia, Sarah, Ali, Paige, and Genevieve from the Regeneration Canada team, and Jean-Marc, Phil, and Obed from the film crew, who all work tirelessly to bring this project to life. The interview with Aaron was recorded on the traditional territory of the Smelkamih, of the Suquanahin, and my parts of the episode were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in the world, and remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.